Did you know that Exploration Radio is the official podcast partner of iMark, the International Mining and Resources Conference and Expo, taking place in Melbourne from the 29th to the 31st of October. iMark is Australia's largest mining event and is attended by more than 7,000 people who are all leaders and key players in the global mining industry. These individuals attend iMark to network, to experience the latest innovations in mining technology, and to discuss the current challenges and opportunities around mining and exploration. Both Steve and I will be attending iMark, where we will be recording interviews with key players in the mining industry straight from the expo floor. Are you interested? Why not join us? Register with the code EXPRADIO, that's E-X-P-R-A-D-I-O, at iMarkMelbourne.com to claim a 10% discount on your registration fees. Hopefully, we'll see you there. Welcome to another episode of Expression Radio. I'm your host, Ahmad. There are a number of challenges when it comes to mineral exploration, both technical and non-technical ones. Today, we'll cover one of the main non-technical ones, how to raise funds for your projects. Most companies out there seem to overwhelmingly favor one model, become a publicly listed company, get on a stock exchange and raise money. One of the main downsides with this model is how do you effectively engage with investors and keep them interested over the period of time it takes to find and develop projects. Dealing with a largely uninformed public it is hard to get investor backing over long periods of time. Now, there is an alternative way, raising money through private means. This is either going through private wealthy individuals who are comfortable with the risk profile and the timeframes involved, or investment funds who are looking to diversify into different market sectors. Maybe as an industry, we would be better off with a private funding model for early stage exploration. You know, something similar to say how private venture capital firms fund startups. Ultimately, irrespective of how you get your funding, the lesson may be we need to run exploration like a business. Our guest today is Tony Manini, who started his career running exploration programs in CRA and Rio Tinto, then helped grow Oxiana, a publicly listed junior explorer, to a multi-billion dollar company, and now is the co-founder and executive director of a private equity firm called EMR Capital. Having been involved in the three separate parts of our industry from an investment perspective, We wanted to talk to him about the lessons he's learned along the way. Let's see what Tony has to say. Expression Radio is proudly sponsored by the AIG, the Australian Institute of Geoscientists. This sponsorship allows us to continue producing the content for AIG members and our wider listeners in Australia and globally. And remember, if you're an AIG member, then you get to claim continued professional development or CPD hours for listening to this episode. Welcome to Expression Radio, Tony. We've been trying to get a hold of you uh, for a while, so it's great that uh, we could figure out the time and you had a window in your schedule that we could make this work. Oh, thanks, Ahmed. It's good to be here. It's nice that somebody actually wants me on their uh, podcast. Happy to be here um, and uh, look forward to it. And is this your uh, first podcast experience? Uh, no, I've done quite a few podcasts in the UK. Some of the investor relations groups uh, use the podcast format in terms of their investor interface. That's great. I mean, obviously, we love the podcast setup, so I think it's great that more and more people are using it. Yeah, no, no, it's fantastic. It's a format that you can use at any time, particularly useful when you're uh, on a long journey somewhere or coming into work. And uh, even my young kids uh, seem to be right into it. So it seems to work for all age groups. You know, to me, the irony is quite rich in the fact that effectively a podcast is a radio program released on the internet. So with all the kind of the media that we have around, we're kind of going back to the age old concept of a radio program, but just released through a different medium now. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's <laughs> it's interesting you say that because uh, in those discussions that I've had with my children who are always asking me, Dad, you know, have you listened to this podcast or I'm going to send this one to you? I always think of, about that irony in that I never see them listening to a radio or anything like that, yet uh, they think this is some new technological <laughs> format, which is quite interesting. But anyway, I, uh, it's good that they're doing it, so um, I'm, I'm supporting them to do more of it. Uh, so, Tony, as we talked about, part of the reason why we wanted to talk to you is throughout your career, you've kind of stepped into all these different roles. And I think the importance really is that those roles tend to have a different a structural element of the industry. You know, you started off with major companies, then you went through the journey of taking a mid-tier company through its kind of uh, life cycle of uh, it becoming a bigger and bigger company. And uh, now you're trying to do that with a lot more of a private investment flavor. 
So I guess one of the reasons why we wanted to talk to you is that you you are probably one of the few people that has gone through all those different structural elements in the industry. And we just wanted to dig into kind of your experiences in that space. I'm more than happy to talk through all of that, Ahmed. It'll be interesting from my own perspective to reflect on, on that journey. So um, yeah, more than happy to share that with you today. Can we start off a little bit about your background? Uh, can we dig into a little bit how you got to where you are right now? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm an exploration geologist by background. The first job that I had was uh, actually in Kalgoorlie, working for North Kalgoorlie Mines and worked in the oldest operating underground mine in the Golden Mile, which was a very interesting time. It was around the same time as uh, Alan Bond and the super pit was getting up and running. So it was quite a unique experience to be working in an underground mine uh, where they were developing an open pit over the top and... Uh, you had the Boulder Block Hotel essentially uh, sitting on an island in the middle of this sort of pit that was put together and the post office uh, likewise. I think the post office, the owner of the post office at the time uh, decided that he would hold out as long as he possibly could to get the highest price for his post office. You had this post office sort of you know, being surrounded by this open pit development uh, and a pub likewise. So, And I should say, sorry to interrupt there, I should say some of our listeners, if they haven't seen photos of what it looked like back in the day, I really encourage you to look at it because when you say it was an island, it really was. It was a really, really bizarre kind of setup from that perspective. Oh, yeah, it was uh, It was quite incredible. I mean, not only were the, the pub and the post office islands, um, you know, we had underground miners who were breaking through to pit walls and through the pit floor and I do remember one particular instance where um, an old underground miner, I still remember his name actually, Jimmy Plekis, and uh, he was found wandering around in, in the open pit on a haul road with dump trucks sort of going by, I think having a sitting down on the side of the road having a cigarette. <laughs> so, uh, uh, The good old days for the super pit. Certainly was an interesting time. So how did uh, a CRA come about? Yeah, so look, I um, initially started actually in diamond exploration in the Kimberleys with CRA for three years. It was a terrific experience and really got thrown in at the deep end there. A big helicopter-supported program, small team, very remote, very intensive, uh, a lot of planning organisation and a lot of sort of you know, really management of big programs and big budgets very early in my career. Tony, if you can take a little bit of a tangent there, from what you've mentioned, your career at CRA, do you think it was a good training ground for you in that sense? Because you obviously got to see large programs, had to interact with a lot of people. You mentioned that you were kind of thrown in the deep end. You know, from that perspective, do those big programs and big companies tend to be a good training ground? Yeah, look, it's a great point. And look, I feel very fortunate to have spent that sort of first 14, 15 years of my career at Rio Tinto. It's incredibly valuable experience. Mm -hmm. From the technical aspects, the, the training and development on the technical side, uh, all aspects of the technical side, the basic fundamentals that you really need in a career as a, as a geologist and as a mining person, not just a geologist. So yeah, okay. fundamental things like sampling, assaying, quality control, quality assurance, all those types of things. And then on top of that, you've got the layer of organisation, drilling practices, safety standards, environmental standards, interaction with local communities. So huge diversity of both technical, managerial and operational uh, experiences that I think, you know, really you just don't get unless you have been exposed to, you know, one of those programs in the bigger organisations. And look, that to me is really fundamental. In, if I just sort of look back on that, mm -hmm. pretty important for my own career. But when I sort of have gone out and have been working uh, as an entrepreneur in the business, you know, for the last 20 years, I've seen a great diversity of sort of skills experience. And I can honestly say that it's very easy to pick the people that have had that big company training and development very quickly uh, in terms of the quality of work, the quality of programs, the attention to the fundamentals that matter in putting together, you know, a good 
program, a good deposit, uh, and a good mining operation. So I typically like to look for people that have had some background in large companies. That's really interesting. Yeah. So for me, it doesn't mean that you can only work for a big company and get that experience. There's a lot of good people who have gained that experience uh, in smaller companies. But um, in an overall sense, that's been my experience that uh, people that have got you know backgrounds in the bigger companies tend to have been trained extremely well. I guess I say that that's really interesting because you know you're effectively putting a premium on the the training and the development that people get in in big companies, which is a little bit counter to, I guess, how some people think about big company people. I mean, I've always personally felt that I think in the start of your career, being in a big company or a big program like that is fantastic because you get to see, you know, and and you mentioned it largely the non-technical side of how to run programs, you know, the people, the community, the organization, the logistics, how do you manage all of that? How do you work with people that are not technical people, all of that stuff? So, um, so yes, I find it really interesting that you're effectively putting a premium on people that have that experience. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I I guess from my perspective, it's that fundamental building blocks, particularly on the technical and operational side. Um, I think that are you know that are that are very important. As I said, it's not. I know quite a few extremely good geologists who you know have got that same experience elsewhere. But um, and and I should say that going back sort of thirty plus years. We had very structured graduate training programs, and I know they still do today, but the numbers of people probably exposed to those structured programs, given the number of companies and number of positions, is probably a lot less. I think that's a fair enough point, I think. Yeah, yeah. And also, you know, the flip side of that, Ahmed, is that there's also some fantastic external training opportunities these days that, you know, smaller companies can send their people to. There's a lot of expertise that grew up in the big companies that are now consultants and working outside. And so I think while the companies themselves are probably doing less in an overall sense as an industry, there's probably a greater diversity of people outside those big companies that have been trained in them that are available you know, to help with people's programs and training development of, of younger people. Yeah, and I think that's a fair enough point. I think there seems to have been a little bit of a focus away from those programs being run internally in companies to them being run or subsidized or managed by essentially professional organizations, you know, the AIG or OzIMM. It seems to be that the onus has kind of moved for those type of organizations to run these mentoring programs rather than companies do it internally. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um but, you know, you are seeing some, you know, good engagement between, you know, the different groups that you just referred to. I mean, Rio Tinto now has their program uh, with the Oz IMM. You know, those sort of uh, partnerships are happening. But as you say, it's in a, it, it takes a bit of a different form today. And I mean, one of the things that I would be doing with younger people is encouraging them to, you know, given that, that um, you know, that internal component is not as readily accessible to everybody these days um, is really to themselves uh, you know look for opportunities and put those opportunities forward to their employees uh, in respect of you know all these these types of things that um, fundamentally underpin you know a career. I think that's an excellent point. I think, yeah, as an employee or even I think as an individual, I think you have to be a little bit more almost selfish about what opportunities you want to find and then go and seek them out rather than wait for the company to kind of provide them for you. And I think you got to think about your own development, I think, a lot more than perhaps waiting for the company to do it for you. Yeah, no, look, absolutely. That's that, that's the case. And, you know, you just have to take ownership yourself and, and push yourself forward. But I will say, I mean, I don't think that's ever been any different, to be quite honest. Yeah, okay. You could have sat in, you, you <laughs> when I worked at CRA Rio Tinto, look, look, there's a certain component that, you know, everybody gets exposed to in terms of training development, you know, that was quite systematic. But in terms of the development of your own career, uh, and when I manage groups of people, I often encourage them to push themselves forward and they take the initiative to tell the company, these are the things that I'm interested in, this is the training and development that I would, would like to get and this is sort of where I'm headed. I guess back in the days that I started out, uh, we were thankful just to have a job so we just did... <laughs> 
do. But I think, you know, even back in those days, once I was in a management position, I certainly encouraged the younger members of the teams to put themselves forward and to think about, you know, what was the development experience that they wanted because I think it was important for them to sort of take control of the direction they wanted to go rather than us be pushing them in a certain direction that maybe they didn't want to go. So it's a critically important part. We certainly do that internally here. We we give you know, people the opportunity, but at the end of the day, the initiative needs to come from them. Um, and then we work out, you know, how that fits with the business. And I think that's a, probably a pretty mature way to look at it. I think there has to be an active part in people's development and a passive part in people's development as well. I don't think you can have one or the other, really. So I think that's a, probably a pretty reasonable way to look at it. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's um, critical. If people are going to have a career in the industry and they're going to enjoy that career in the industry, then it's important that they you know, get the training and development in the area that they would like to go. So I guess it's it's an, it's an area that I'd encourage uh, the younger listeners to um, not be shy in coming forward. No, no, fair enough. Uh, so you obviously spent a fair amount of time in um, Rio Tinto CRA. Uh, how did uh, Oxiana come about? Or why, I should say, did Oxiana come about? Yeah, so as I said, I was 15 years thereabouts with Rio. The last three years, uh, I was exploring for base metals and gold uh, in West Australian gold fields. And then one day, um, my boss at the time, Graham Drew, uh, who's actually the managing director of a junior company called OzQuest these days, mm-hmm. and uh, Graham called me in and said, oh, look, Tony, we've got this opportunity in Laos. And... Um, we think you're you, you're the right person for this role. So, cut a long story short, I didn't actually know where Laos was, and I'd only been overseas <laughs> once, I think, at that time. Uh, and I said, oh, "Okay," it was a bit of a shock to me at the time. But um, I went up to Laos and had a look, and um, you know, it was extreme frontier at that time. There was still an insurgency operating in the north of the country. It was just coming out of the you know, the Soviet era, and um, it was extremely uh, third world undeveloped. But um, I mean, I think at that time of that country's history, I think that was a really fascinating time because it was really that time where the country pivots from like a, I don't know what the right way to say it is, but, you know, the old world order to the new world order. So that would have been a fascinating time to be in that country. Extremely fascinating, extremely fascinating, right from the work side, the setting up the business, operating the business in Laos, you know, to the, you know, just the the social interaction on a day-to-day basis. It was was very much a frontiers place with a very heavy overlay of restrictions. So I ended up being there, Ahmed, in Laos. I I took a suitcase. Mm -hmm. Uh, They said I would be there for around three to six months. Yep. Came back 10 years later. See, they didn't tell you how long a month was going to be. That was that was the issue yeah. here. There. Yeah. So we went to Laos. The the project, the Sepon project, which is relevant to Oxiana, uh, that I'll come back to in a minute. The Sepon project um, was found relatively early um, in the exploration programs there, but it took around two years to negotiate the contract of work. Wow. So I subsequently as sort of the senior exploration geologist at the time and did around two years of type generative work, both inside and outside of Laos in the region. Okay. And then after a couple of years, the contract of work was negotiated and we got on the ground at Sapon. And, you know, we went through the usual exploration processes, geochemistry, rock chip sampling and all the surface uh, exploration techniques, worked up some drill targets. But as is often the case, I think the first you know, 10 or 11 holes came in with not very much in them. A little disappointing. Um, We then went back to, you know, square one, uh, really pulled the geology together a lot better and started to get an understanding of what we we were looking at. Uh, We had a bit of a breakthrough with uh, a hole 12, um, drilled one of our geological targets, and that hole came in. From that point, the whole thing sort of clicked together in terms of the geology and the controls on, you know, what was controlling the gold mineralisation. And to cut a long story short, we we mm-hmm. then, at that point in time, we did some big step outs. We hit uh, each time, and I think within 23 holes, we knew we had a million ounces. Wow, that's pretty good. Yeah, so from it's quite interesting when you think about that. The first 11 holes were duds. 
hole 12 hit and then with those next 10, 11 holes, we had them spaced enough and we knew the geology reasonably well enough to, to be confident so that gave quite a lot of impetus, as you would imagine, to the company to really get behind a substantial program at Sapon. So mm-hmm. our budget ramped up. We then uh, we had a big program running. Now that sort of sounds pretty typical, but we were exploring on the Ho Chi Minh Trail in Laos, the most heavily bombed place on earth. And you- <laughs> You can still look up that statistic today. So a lot of unexploded ordnance, very remote area, no infrastructure at all, very heavy wet season. And they had this overlay of, um, you know, very, very heavily contaminated uh, Vietnam War era ordnance. I mean, it sounds like a perfect place to send a senior exploration geologist with a drilling crew and a drill rig. So... Yeah, sounds perfect. Yeah, 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 exactly. So um, anyway, you know, as you'd imagine, uh, from a health and safety perspective, we had to put together some processes and systems and, you know, consultants and get a program in place to keep people safe in that environment, which we did. And I'm very proud to say that we worked there on the ground for the next eight years without an accident or major incident. That's great. We found a lot of bombs and a lot of boob traps, (laughs) a lot of (laughs) other (laughs) <laughs> um, at least we found that's the main thing yeah um, that's right so anyway look we subsequently went on to find a three and a half million ounce skull deposit drilled that up we then discovered the canon copper deposit and the canon copper deposit was a fantastic discovery it was a very interesting story because we went there to find gold as you can imagine high value low bulk commodity new country low capital you know, very good for managing the risk of a new environment like Laos. Mm-hmm. No interest within the company whatsoever to find copper at that time. Mm-hmm. We found this area with a big extensive Gossen, uh, and each year at the end of the gold program, we'd drill another two holes into this thing, <laughs> just uh, nice wide space holes to keep the interest up, and then we'd get in trouble for actually drilling it. Uh, we just kept reminding people that it was there. So... Going back to that discussion, Ahmed, about, you know, when countries change, when things change, it was quite incredible that we went from having this very remote site to five years having a new, basically a new highway running within 40 kilometres of the site with access to a port in Vietnam and back into Thailand, into, you know, the infrastructure there, new bridges, new roads. What used to take us four days of traveling was take take us half a day. So wow, things change quickly, which therefore changed the outlook quickly in terms of, okay, uh, let's assess what we've got in terms of the copper deposit. So we subsequently were given decent budget, got on there, did some work. And, you know, we discovered in, in addition to three and a half million ounces of gold, we discovered around two million tons of contained copper, about two, two and a half percent. Then there was a significant change. In 1998, RTZ and CRA merged to form Rio Tinto. Mm -hmm. And around that time, I decided I needed to get back to Australia. The company sort of asked me to stay on for a bit, which I did. And then I essentially came back and I actually moved into a role, which was a commercial role. Oh, okay. It was a business development come commercial type role. So I moved into that based here in Melbourne for a couple of years and the project in Laos was given essentially, you know, the goalposts moved very significantly. We'd met the goalposts for CRA, but they changed very significantly when the company became Rio Tinto. So the team there was given 12 months to show that the scale of the assets was sort of five times what they were. <laughs> yep. That didn't eventuate. And ultimately, the company decided to put them up for sale. Did you feel any change when CRA and Rio Tinto merger became the bigger entity? Did you feel that there was a, a difference in what direction it was going in or what uh, what it wanted to do in that sense? Absolutely. I mean, as I said, the goalposts change, right? And when the goalposts change, um, you know, I think the you know you have to think about the business a different way. Now, one thing I will say, one of the great things about working at CRA, we were always taught that exploration was a business. Mm-hmm. That was drummed into us from very early in our careers that we weren't in it for technical success, uh, although that was nice. We were actually in there to find mines for the company to build things around. CRA was a very entrepreneurial company. It was a big company, much more akin to a sort of a small to mid-tier company today. Mm-hmm. And always had the concept of, well, okay, 
you know, we go into a jurisdiction like Laos, we find a small gold deposit, we get it started and we get to know the operating environment and we build it up. We went from that to basically a big corporate really with a different outlook and mm-hmm. that was it had to be scaled from day one. Yeah, okay. So, so it was a very different mindset that, um, you know, we weren't going to start small and gradually build it up. It had to be a substantial uh, sized opportunity from day one that which made a difference to the bottom line of the company. So, you know, very significant change in terms of the business, the way you thought about the business, and that obviously impacts the way that you did your exploration as well. Yeah, I mean, that's a fundamental change in how you review projects, how you prioritize projects. So, yeah, I think that's a Correct. good point. Yeah, so that that was, you know, from the exploration perspective, absolutely, you know, a major change. And I was actually, you know, um, you know, obviously that last sort of year and a half, two years that I worked here in Melbourne, that was a business development type role. So, and for a business development role, obviously it changes sort of the way you look at business development opportunities as well. Mm-hmm. What was very interesting, I'd been back in Melbourne and I was given the job to sell the SEPON project as the commercial manager at the time. Now, just to remind people, in 1999, when that was happening, the gold price was $250 and the cost was 63 cents a pound. I was going to say, I mean, when you were telling the story that for people of my generation, having companies like Rio Tinto, CRA, actually look for gold seems like it's from like yesteryear, like way into yeah. yesteryear. Gold yeah. is something that these companies don't touch at all. So, And obviously the prices that you're talking about, we can't fathom those prices in the current environment at all. No, that's right. So look, it was really at the very, very bottom of the, of the cycle. And to sell this project in Laos, of all places where you still had a an insurgency running and most people had never heard of. So, you know, it was a pretty hard ask. We ran that process ourselves. We went out to a whole range of different groups, mid-tiers, juniors and others. And subsequently, the project was sold to Oxiana, to Owen Hegarty, which was a junior company. Mm-hmm. You'll find this quite incredible, but three and a half million ounces of gold, two million tonnes of contained high-grade copper at surface, all the gold open pitable. We only had one offer that actually put any money front. <laughs> so Oxiana was the only company that put up some upfront money. There was a number of others who put in sort of similar offers, but all back-ended. Owen Hegarty, as many people would know, he's an ex-CRA Rio Tinto man as well, 25 years in their business. So he was known to us. Did you know Owen before? Had you worked with Owen no, no, so I hadn't worked with Owen and I didn't know Owen. Uh, the first time I met Owen was on the on the opposite sides of a, of a negotiation. <laughs> okay. to so subsequently, Oxiana was a very small company, I think a three million market cap company, acquired the asset. I think it was uh, $1 million down with $19 million of payments, so $20 million to acquire 80% of the project. Mm-hmm. Owen was keen for Rio Tinto to stay in for 20%, obviously, you know, to provide not so much support Oxiana, but to, um, you know, with the government of Laos for them to have a a known entity still there as the project sort of was taken forward into development. And Rio was quite sort of keen to to maintain the opportunity to do other things in Laos. So they stayed in. I think at that time, the company was comfortable that Owen would do the the soft things right, the environmental management, the community issues, et cetera, et cetera. So Oxiana paid $20 million for the first 80% and then bought the last 20% a few years later for $80 million. So... <laughs> So everybody won. Yep. So subsequently, that was really the foundation of Oxiana. As I said, it was a $3 million market cap company. It only had um, Owen, a company secretary, uh, finance guy, and a couple of other people at that time. Post uh, Oxiana acquiring SEPON, you know, Oxiana were, were not familiar with operating in Laos, obviously. So at that time, Owen asked if someone from Rio Tinto could be seconded or help them uh, with the transition of the project and with the relationships, etc. Mm, okay. I was tasked with that role. So I subsequently moved across to Siana on secondment for a period of time. And, you know, it was during that time that I sort of got to know the team, got to understand, you know, what they were looking to do and the vision for the business. So 
I'd always had um, had a very strong interest in junior resource companies and ultimately felt that that's where I would uh, end up in my career. So the opportunity came up to become the head of exploration or the exploration manager for Oxiana. And I subsequently took that opportunity and moved across to from Rio Tinto to Oxiana, one extreme to the other. So a multi-billion dollar company to a $3 million company. Um so moving across to Oxiana, obviously, um, you know, pretty significant change in terms of going from um, a much bigger organisation with a lot of support structure around you to a small organisation where you're one of three or four people. And, you know, Oxiana had the Spon project, you know, in the bottom of the cycle, it was a real struggle to put together any capital. It was a very big jump for a small company. It was all done on the shoestring. We had, you know, a group of loyal backers and supporters who essentially financed the development of the first gold project. But it was incredibly good experience for all of us. Certainly from my perspective, it was a career-changing experience in that we were taking, you know, an exploration project through studies, through construction and into operations and all the aspects that are involved in doing that. I was sort of exposed to and working with the engineers and metallurgists and you know the community specialists and you know all the different um, disciplines and really learning sort of how all those parts of the business interface was a challenging time but you know subsequently the first mine was built 150,000 ounces a year Mm -hmm. all pretty much financed by small number of deep pocketed high net worth individuals and one or two funds uh, but really institutional support came much later I guess I want to talk a little bit about that. Did you have to get a little bit more climatized to the fact that, yeah, in a junior company, you have to be a lot more responsive to shareholders and investors than, say, in a major company or a mid-tier company? Was that something that you had to kind of learn along the way? I mean, you wouldn't have had too much exposure to that being in something like CRA or Rio Tinto. No, no, absolutely not. But what I would say, I mean, is from my own perspective, I've always been a very keen investor in junior mining companies almost from the day I started work. Ah, okay. I did have an ambition to ultimately run a junior explorer developer. So Mm -hmm. I did have that sort of, I guess, exposure through my interest in investing to understand how that part of it actually worked, but I'd never had the actual exposure myself. Very different to coming out of Rio Tinto in that I was the sort of head technical guy and I had to, you know, present and I had to present in a manner which people that were from, you know, business backgrounds, non-technical uh, could understand. I mean, I guess that that was the point I was trying to get to is that I think big companies, as a technical person, you often communicate to other technical teams, obviously a component of kind of the business side as well. But a large percentage of your communication or your decision making largely comes from the, the technical side. Whereas in a junior company, I think it's probably flipped the other way around. It's rare that you get highly technical investors, I assume, like, you know, most of the investors are trying to judge how well can you put the story to them that they can understand it. Absolutely. And that's um, the way you just described it then is pretty much the way I described to the CEOs of the current junior companies that I'm a chairman of is that your role is the role of a storyteller. And you have to be able to tell your story in terms that get people excited They want to support you. They understand what they're getting into. And all of that has to happen in a non-technical way, but with sufficient technical input that they have confidence that you actually know what you're doing. I think that's a great way to put it, actually. And uh, so that's a that's a, there's an art form in that. And you know, good CEOs of junior companies, good promoters of junior companies have really got that down to an art form in that there's sufficient technical detail that people are confident they know what they're doing and they weave a vision and a story about where they're headed and what it's going to take to get there and the support they need. And, um, you know, that's a, it, is, is, it is an art form and there's, you know, some people do it extremely well and probably the majority do it fairly poorly. 
I mean, I think it's fascinating you say that because we talked about that we've had Malcolm Norris, someone you know, on the show as well. And the conversation with him, he kind of described it as the difference between stand-up comedy and making a movie. That I think when you work in a junior company, you're more like a stand-up comedian. You got to figure out what your audience wants because it changes night by night. You have to be a lot more responsive about what you're saying and how they're reacting and then kind of cater your story as you go along or your pitch as you go along. Um, And I think the way that you've kind of said it makes a lot of sense because ultimately the investor crowd is not a homogeneous crowd it's not you know the same individual coming in 10 times they tend to be different people with different requirements you know they might want a little bit more technical information or none at all they're just kind of backing you as the individual or you as a geologist or you as a developer or whatever it is so i think there's a lot more kind of feedback or interaction when you're working in a junior company than say in kind of a major company in that sense yeah, no, absolutely. That's, I mean, you've described it extremely well there. And I think one of the, you know, one of the critical things that uh, you need to do when you're exposed to that in a junior company is to understand your audience. You know, that's that's a, such an important part. I always worked hard at understanding who was in the audience, what was their level of knowledge of mining, a level of knowledge of exploration, what was it they probably would want to hear. Mm-hmm. There is a great diversity of people. So, Um, You know, you had to set your pitch accordingly. And um, the investors are from a very different background to, you know, us as technical geologists and operators of projects. And um, that divide is is very large and uh, it's an important divide that needs to be crossed well. Yeah, and I think part of that is something I think we probably as an industry need to learn a little bit. I think in your role, you know, being involved in junior companies, you probably see a wide transect of it. But if you step away into, say, the startup world, when you talk to venture capital companies, a lot of the times that's really what they're looking for. They're looking for how well can the team work and how well can they communicate their ideas. Where sometimes as technical people, we think the merit of the idea that we have or the product that we have should win at all times. But in reality, the investors sometimes have a different metric that they're judging you by. Absolutely. And uh, you will find, you know, this throughout my career, I've run into, you know, a very diverse range of investors. And probably the common thread amongst the technical people, people that understand the technical side that are successful, are those that get the people side right, as well as the technical side. The non technical side, they are fundamentally driven by the quality of the people and their message, as you allude to. And I can give you a great example of that. Mm -hmm. There was a fund here in Melbourne. He won't be known to, well, he's known to quite a few people in the junior resource industry from probably 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Louis Johnson, Lewis Johnson, and um, absolute character. And uh, Louis ran a fund for the old Stormen and Packers I'm not sure what they're called today, but Stormman and Packers were a notorious union union back in their day. <laughs> okay. I got to know him uh, through Oxiana. He was a very early investor in Oxiana. One day, Lewis came on a site visit and um, I said to him, Louis, who do you use as an analyst? All the junior companies that I see that I like myself, you already seem to be invested in. Who does your analytical work for you? And Louis said to me, Tony, I don't have any analysts. I don't believe in any analysts. (laughs) And he was a pretty portly man, Louis Johnson, and he just patted his like this. And he said, Tony, as you can see, I like to eat and drink a lot. And when you eat and drink a lot, you get to know people well. My philosophy is simple. I get to know people well, and I just back the best people. That's fantastic. There's a real-life example of an investor who made a lot of money out of early mover into Oxiana, but not only Oxiana. He was a, an early investor into many, many junior companies and supported them through their early growth, you know, using that philosophy. So it's incredibly important, that people side of things, and they've, they've got to get an understanding that, you, you know, you know what you're doing, you know how to run your business, you know how to put a team together, you know how to execute. So, you know, it was one of the things that I, you know, just in thinking about this you know, discussion today that, um, you know, we sort of often divide up this technical and business piece, but the reality is that expiration in itself is a business and you need to think about it as a business. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. 
we always need to be thinking about what return are we getting on our investment. We need to set our strategies and execute our programs according to that. It's a different business. It's a high-risk probabilities management business, and it needs to be really thought about in that context. I spend a lot of time and I'm very interested in the probabilities management exercise part of the business. And I've spent a lot of my career thinking about how do I stack the odds in my favour such that I'm playing a one in 20 game, not a one in a thousand game like everybody else. Yeah, and I think that's a good way to think about it, actually. So I tend to have read a lot of books about probabilities, management, chance, things like the undoing project and thinking fast and slow and these types of things. What sort of stimulates you to think about it that way is that you'll look around and you say, well, there's, you know, there might be a thousand geologists or 10,000 geologists or whatever the number is. Um, Why is it that 96% or 95% don't find anything yet there's maybe half a dozen people who've found two, three, four things. They must be doing something different. Yeah, that's that's right. So they're obviously doing something that seems to work repeatedly. Yeah, yeah, no, a- absolutely. And so trying to sort of understand, you know, what what are they doing? And, and it's not just individuals, of course, it's teams. And, you know, you know, what is it that that company's doing that's different from others? Or what is it that team's doing that's different from others? And, um, you know, ultimately, there's a few key things that that's that I've sort of nailed that down to. But um, at the end of the day, it comes down to people, it comes down to people's background and experience, it comes down to their motivations as to why they're doing something, skill levels, There's a whole range of different aspects, probably those things coupled with the ability to knock things on the head pretty quickly when they don't see the patterns that they're looking for coming through in the data or the drilling. You know, the points you made are really good because I think as technically trained people, we sometimes lose sight of that fact that we think that the technical component outweighs everything else. And obviously, as a baseline, you have to have something good. You can't have a terrible project and try to make something out of it. But ultimately, the technical part only takes you so much. It's a lot of the other side of things, like the business side of how you work with people, that I think is you know quite important. I would argue when you do project generation, especially going into a new country or a real frontier, the technical part is only probably one small piece of the whole puzzle. It's really around the community side, how you talk to people, how you find people, and how do you find local people that have the right knowledge. All of those things are far more important. Most deposits in frontier areas are found through very simple technical work. So that's not the challenging part. It's all the other things that are really challenging. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, new frontiers, exploration, there's many different aspects to it. But as you say, that sort of interface with people, communities, I just use the example of sort of in Laos, you know, when we first went to Laos, um, you know, we just simply got a suite of mineralized rocks a suite of sort of altered rocks and we asked people have you seen these in other places and people took you to places okay you got a few false leads and various other things you looked at maps you translated maps which told you this was you know gold gully or sour water stream or something like that so a lot of different aspects to it as you say and relatively simple and you know in that context you know prospecting sort of a big part of it but look it shouldn't be any surprise that you know diversity of experience is is absolutely critical to success in this business. I mean, besides the probabilities management piece that we talked about, you know, diversity of experience, mm-hmm. people that have seen a lot of rocks, you know, visited hundreds of prospects, countless mines, looked at lots of drill core and scour through volumes of reports and data and images, you know, they know what they're looking for. They know what are the clues you know, they can recognise the clues or leads that make a difference, really based on that diversity of experience. So I think that's another piece that I, you know, would pass on to younger geologists, you know, people coming into the industry, you know, take every opportunity you can to see as many things as you possibly can and get that, you know, real wide diversity of experience, I guess, tap into the knowledge base of 
what I'd call the grey hair and scar tissue. <laughs> um, That's a good title for this episode, I reckon. <laughs> so, you know, grey hair and scar tissue, it's um, mining is an experience-based business and exploration is also very much that way. So, you know, the ability to get that diversity of see as many things as you possibly can, diversity of experience, know what you're looking for, know the clues, be able to recognise the clues and then, you know, manage the probabilities through your strategy and your execution of your programs that give yourself the best chance. You know, I've spent 35 years thinking about that, applying that, changing it around, tapping into it, and still do to this day, really. I think that's a, that's a fantastic way to put it. I guess I want to change a little bit. So we've talked about kind of the investment side and how you handled the the interaction with them when you went through the Oxiana phase. So what encouraged you to move from kind of the public investment space into the more private investment space? Was there a reason why you preferred one mm. or the other? Yeah, look, um, there's a couple of things. And maybe I just, just step aside. That's the Oxiana experience, um, you know, we've just been through the SEPON part of that. But obviously, beyond that, after SEPON, we acquired Golden Grove in Western Australia and redeveloped that from Newmonts. You know, that became a successful operation. We acquired at an early stage Prominent Hill mm-hmm. through the takeover of the tour, developed that operation and then had Matabi. After Oxiana and Zinefex merged and became Oz Minerals, you know, obviously the company was, you know, was getting pretty sizable again. And uh, at that point in time, I decided to go out on my own again and we formed a private incubator business called Tiger's Realm Group. Mm -hmm. And it was done in the private sphere. What we did was we used our own capital and the capital of a sort of a, I guess, a close group of supporters to go out, find assets uh, globally. Um, work those assets up to a point where uh, we needed larger tranches of capital and then we took those to the public markets and then operated those companies in the public markets and they're still operating today. So therein lies the dilemma that you have, Ahmed, as a junior explorer. Mm -hmm. It's a very capital-intensive business. It's a high-risk business, as we said, and irrespective of how successful you are, it requires a lot of capital. So, you know, you tend to tap out pretty quickly in terms of your own pocket and your family and friends' pockets. Yep, that's fair enough. And that's really what drives people to go to the public markets for exploration and mining development businesses. It's just really the, the amount of capital that's involved. So do you lose a little bit of freedom when you go to, say, a, a public market? I mean, I guess it seems like the review or the finding of the projects, the generation of the projects is maybe better done when you're a, a private company because obviously you're not beholden to as many people. But then when you go the next step, then you obviously have to go to the public market. So do you lose a little bit of freedom in that transaction? Yeah, look, I mean, there's always going to be a little less freedom just because, you know, there's a lot of other things that you need to bring into the equation. Um, And as you know, you know, the investor interface that we talked about, public reporting, there's a compliance overlay, you know, there's a whole range of different things which sort of impact you as a smaller entity. And there's a cost involved in, in all of that overlay and compliance, investor interface, both time and money. So, you know, I think certainly if you could manage to, um, you know, run a generative program, which we did at Tiger's Realm privately, was actually very successful and it was a good way to do it. But, you know, fundamentally, uh, at the end of the day, you do run out of money. Yeah, that's right. What that uh, experience, I think, brought to us was that we realised actually private was a good way to do things, but you really needed the capital to be able to follow through on your early stage sort of success and see things through. And that was where the idea of a private equity model came about for EMR Capital. Yeah, okay. And it was really to say, well, if we had a dedicated capital, um, you know, that would put us in a position where we could actually take the best of these opportunities, you know, through the full life cycle and maybe not necessarily have to go to the public market at all. That was really how that idea was sort of seeded. Yeah, okay. I think that's a really good way to think about it. Yeah, so then, you know, various things sort of conspired and we, Owen and myself, got together with uh, Jason Chang. Jason was at KPMG, heading up the China business practice for KPMG. He was always coming to us looking for 
opportunities to take to the Chinese buyers. And we were on the other side, you know, looking for capital. So over a few beers, we sort of decided that, um, you know, maybe we should think about a private equity or private type platform. And that's really how the thinking came about. Uh, EMR was put together. Uh, We've been sort of at it for about somewhere in the order of seven years in total now, um, investing for about five Mm -hmm. and really tapping into a completely different universe of investors. You know, you've got, I think it's probably 95% of the capital in mining is, you know, in the public markets um, that we all know. And in public companies, there's probably about 5 to 10%, which is, you know, through the private equity vehicles such as ours. The majority of the capital comes from the US. Most of the investors, in fact, Predominantly, I'd say you know, nearly all of the investors have no knowledge of really very, very little knowledge of exploration and mining whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But they are portfolio managers and they manage big pools of capital. They have an option going to all different types of investments. One of the areas is what they call real assets and sitting under the real assets bucket is you know, agriculture, mining and minerals, oil and gas, and real estate. And depending upon how they view the macroeconomic outlook, they adjust their weightings in those portfolios uh, accordingly. So they do have a small allocation or an allocation to metals and mining. And ultimately, going back to where we started or where we were earlier on about people, their next decision is who are they going to give that money to? Mm-hmm. And that's the Part that um, you know the the level of due diligence, the level of sort of background referencing, and the level of detail they go into on the people side is you've never seen that before. <laughs> um, uh, but it makes sense, though. Like essentially, they are backing you as individuals more than anything else. So, so it makes total sense. Correct. Correct. So it sort of goes back to a little bit you know, the Lewis Johnson example I gave where Lewis, you know, getting to know people well and backing people. Well, that's exactly what these guys are doing. Mm-hmm. They know very little about the industry. They're very good macroeconomic thinkers and they do know that late in the economic cycle like we are now, metals and mining has been very beat up, valuations have been low. It's a good place to put a bit of money. So therefore, you know, we go to talk to those people and then, you know, those people will decide whether they will support your strategy and what you're trying to do. So, you know, very different environment, but at the same time, uh, I mean, you still have an audience that you've got to, you know, I mean, they're the providers of capital, you know, in the public markets. There's a wide range of shareholders and you have to, you know, engage with those shareholders But I think it's just the number and diversity that makes it more challenging. Whereas here, you've got people that have made their decision. They've made that decision, put money in for the long haul. Mm -hmm. So it becomes more of a partnership. But once that decision's made, you've just got to get on and perform. You know, you're not under the constant scrutiny that you are in the public markets. Like I like to say to people today, I feel I have a competitive advantage it's called patience. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I guess my question about being private when you're doing project generation or project review or trying to find projects largely comes from the fact of what you just said, that it's a partnership. In project generation, you tend to have a much higher failure rate. You, know, you have to follow leads, which might not become anything. And I think that's maybe a harder thing to sell to a wide public that doesn't have that maybe close relationship that you might have with a private investor. Whereas when you're getting to a development cycle, you know, it's a little bit easier to kind of tell people what your plan is because the plan is relatively going to stay very consistent. But when you're doing project generation, you know, your plan could change. You know, you might think a country is a really good place to go and work, but then you do a little bit of work and realize that it's a complete dead end and then you walk away. You know, so in my head, I think that the rate of failure or that inability to communicate, say, the perfect plan at the start maybe works better when you have a private investor rather than a, a public holding or a public shareholders? Yeah, look, I mean, there's a couple of things about that particular aspect. The first one is, you know, managing exploration programs within a whole range of, you know, juniors through to sort of mid-tier and larger companies what I've always said to the exploration managers that have worked underneath me and my own philosophy is, 
you can't have all your eggs in the high-risk basket because ultimately you lose the support of the people providing capital to you. So the way that we worked is that, I don't know, call it 70 to 80% of the money goes into things where we can measure the outcomes and convey the expected outcomes and deliver a large part of the expected outcomes to our audience. And then we have sort of 20 to 30%, which is in the high risk end of the spectrum, where ultimately we're not living and dying on the outcomes of that. We're living and dying on the outcomes of the other sort of 70 to 80%, but we do have a high risk component, which ultimately people can live with. If high risk is the only thing you're doing, (laughs) you've got to have very, very strong support. And that support can only come in two forms, in my view. Probably the best support comes from, you know, it's long-term strategic type investors. Now that can take a number of different forms, but certainly, you know, high net worths and ultra high net worth people who have an interest in what you're doing, have an interest in the business of high risk, high return, uh, and will allocate a small amount of money to that. There are those types of people out there, not easy to find, but there's a small universe of those. And then there's, you know, the private equity types that we talked about. But I can tell you very honestly that even in the private equity space, that high risk, high reward uh, strategy is not a strategy that's well supported. But intuitively, that makes sense, right? Like, I mean, you can only really do high risk, high reward for a short amount of time. I think in the long run, it's a really hard strategy to kind of hang your hat on. Yeah, but what you'll find, though, Amit, is that in the private equity space in resources, there's people like ourselves at EMR, and then you've got RCF, and you've got Denim, and you've got City Capital, and there's a, there's a range. Mm-hmm. What you'll find is that we all get sort of classified in the same bucket, but we're actually all running different strategies. That's a fair point. Yeah, so EMR has its particular strategy, da 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 So what you'll find is that the people, the providers of capital, actually will say, okay, we've got X amount of money for resources. We're going to put so much to work with EMR Capital. We're going to put so much to work with RCF. And we're going to put so much to work with these guys over here who are doing early stage high risk stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So they manage their own risk within their portfolio. So, you know, there's a number of sort of different ways that you can tap into that capital. There are people in private equity space that do support the higher risk end of the spectrum. And, you know, the other is, you know, the just that sort of, I guess, group of people who understand the industry, understand high risk, high reward, and do have the ability to sort of support that. But it is a different universe. But as with any universe, there's always somebody that you're uh, accountable to. Yeah, that's right. I mean, ultimately, in the private equity space, if you had a terrible strategy and you weren't returning anything, I don't think you would have support for very long. No, exactly. That's exactly right. You know, the other thing I guess I, I want to get your opinion on is that other thing that I do find interesting about the private equity space is that to me, it looks like you have a lot more degrees of freedom on how you can make a return on your investment. When you're doing, say, corporate development work, for particularly for a mining company, you know, you're really only interested in one lever, which is does this investment turn into a future revenue stream for us or cash flow? Whereas in the private equity space, you're really looking for anything that gives you a certain return on investment. You could make that through an arbitrage or buying a project at one point and selling it another time, or you can buy a project and do a little bit of work and change the resource or something. That's an arbitrage that you can take advantage of. It seems like in the private equity space, you have a lot more freedom on on how you make a return out of projects as well. Do you think that's the case as well? Um. It's very definitely the way that the private equity space operates. You know, where is my exit? What are the various points of exit? And, you know, what provides the best sort of return in terms of not just purely the financial return, but also perhaps the utilisation of resources, the opportunity cost, et cetera. So you're 100% right that um, the trading of assets can happen at any time in the life cycle. What you do tend to find is that um, there's different strategies and people have a tendency or a strategy which is typically to get in at this point and get out at that point. Mm -hmm. One of the barriers within private equity is the time constraints, and I think that's often sort of underestimated. 
exploration and mining projects often take long time to incubate and to gestate in terms of their maturity. That's probably a restriction you don't have in a public company in that you do have to get in and get out within a certain time frame and that very much sort of dictates the way that you think about things. But the flexibility to trade projects in and out is certainly there. But I really think I mean, that well-run public companies should always be thinking that way. That's true, yeah. You know, if, if you look at, let's take Evolution Mining just as an example, mm-hmm. you know, Evolution, you know, has traded a number of assets out. It's bought bigger assets. It's bought high-quality assets. It's traded other assets. I think Rio Tinto's, you know, done that extremely well with their exploration as well. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think Rio Tinto is probably a great example. They've probably been able to wash their face by how much divestments they made of their exploration projects in that sense. Absolutely. And and Steve McIntosh alluded to that when he spoke at Diggers and Dealers recently. And, um, you know, knowing Steve and knowing the way that team operates um, goes back to the whole thing that we spoke about earlier on. Thinking about exploration as a business, as I said, that got drummed into me very early days at Rio Tinto. And it's obviously still a very critical part of the way Rio Tinto approaches exploration, given what Steve said. So, you know, I think with that type of mindset in terms of your ability to trade assets and exploration wash its face is a fantastic way to build internal support for exploration dollars and um, the ability to consistently run a decent scale program over a significant period of time. We have to take responsibility really ourselves as people who run junior companies and the way that we sort of operate them and really focus on running them as businesses and trade assets and cut our losses and absolutely maximise the returns we get from the dollars that we're given. You know, I see far too many companies flogging away at projects that are never going to turn into anything. There's a lifestyle involved, which, you know, impacts upon good decision-making. There's a whole range of different things that um, probably make programs ineffectual and flow-on effect of that is that, um, you know, investors lose confidence. Yeah, and I think that's exactly the point that if you're not going to make it a sustainable business, if you're running an exploration program, then it's really hard to convince investors to invest in you. You can't keep going to the well again and again to just keep borrowing money. At some point, you have to have some level of sustainability in your business model. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you have to approach it that way. And, you know, we're beholden to try and improve the record, if you like. That will be the thing that brings people back into the industry and generates confidence in providing capital for, you know, these earlier stage, you know, higher risk ventures. So I think whether it's public or private, at the end of the day, it's fundamental. You still got to deliver. Yeah, exactly. I think very well said. Towards the end of the interview, we always ask our guests two questions. So the first one is, what is an idea, a concept, a behavior in our industry that you think needs to die, something that we need to get rid of completely? I'd like to think the very thing that we just spoke about is the thing that um, we need to sort of remove from the way that we go about the business, and that is that the concept of not thinking about what you're doing as a business and providing a return on investment really needs to be wiped out. You know, there's no room for lifestyle. There's no room for doing things because of its fun. There's no room for doing things because you enjoy technical success. (laughs) At the end of the day, at the end of the day, you know, you know, I'm really passionate about this business. First and foremost, you know, I'm an exploration geologist through and through. You know, the thing that I love most still to this day is, you know, having a new drill target and, and going and testing that target and getting success. But, you know, we need to be much more disciplined. So I think, you know, rigor and discipline around the way we approach things and removing all the things that get in the way. I mean, I just always look at it. Ahmed, and I think, you know, this industry would be in far better shape if we had all the money that's available for exploration in the hands of about one quarter of the people. Yeah, like I completely agree. I think often we complain that there's not enough money, but we as an industry probably have to accept that every dollar being spent by different people is not the same. Some dollars that are being spent a lot more effectively and some dollars that are being spent not as effectively. If you took out those ineffective dollars, then maybe we actually do a pretty good job of returning on investment. Yep, yep. No, no, that's that's right. So, I mean, I think if there was one thing I could change, that would be it. 
So that's something that you want to get rid of. So what is something that you want to maintain in our industry at all costs? Something that is fundamental to our DNA and something that we should never forget. Yeah, look, one of the things that I think it's sort of part of that as well, and that's really the training and development and exposure and opportunities that we give to, you know, the next generation of explorers. I mean, you read all the case histories of how things get found. Generally, they involve good science coupled together with a bit of luck. Uh, serendipity plays an important part, but ultimately serendipity plays out because people are in the right place for the wrong reason, which means they're in the field. <laughs> so, you know, we've got to make sure that we just don't make it so prohibitive that um, people can't get out and explore for a range of reasons. You know, we need to ensure that people can still get out in the field in a sensible way, still fulfil all their obligations in respect of sort of health, safety, etc. You know, ensure that that's still happening and ensure they're equipped with the sort of relevant skills, experience and knowledge base to, you know, give themselves and their companies and the industry the best chance of success because, you know, it's the old saying, success breeds success. So, we need people to be successful. We need people to get good returns on investment dollars. And it's a crucial part, that sort of ongoing training development uh, of our people, because ultimately the people are the ones that are going to make the difference. I think that's a pretty good spot to end on. Thanks a lot for joining us, Tony. This is great. This is a really good chat. No worries. Thanks, Ahmed. It's been a, been a pleasure. It was, uh, as you said, it was, um, it was uh, we went nowhere near the script, but we covered a lot of ground. Thank you. <laughs> no, no. Th thanks a lot for giving up your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I think, you know, your perspective is a really refreshing one. For someone like myself to hear that perspective, I think it's really great. You know, we sometimes get a little bit too caught up in our own world. It's always good to get a different perspective to take us out of it. So I think that was great. Thanks, Simon. Thanks for the opportunity and uh, appreciate it. Exploration Radio is brought to you by Steve and Ahmad. This episode was produced and edited by Ahmad. If you want to find out more about this podcast, check us out on explorationradio.com or follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. And we're even on Instagram. And if you like this podcast and want to help out, well, there's two things you can do for us. Give us a review on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And consider supporting us in producing more of this content. You can find the details on how to do that on our website at explorationradio.com support. Until next time, Let's keep exploring.